chapter 21. This evening we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 21. And the last time in chapter 20, we looked at Sheba's rebellion, how the rebellion was put down, and really some great lessons about Joab and kind of we, how we can take that parallel into our lives and maybe look at some Joabs in our lives. So, uh, you know, he was a guy who got stuff done, but a lot of times it was underhanded. And that's certainly not the way we want to get things done. And those aren't the people that we want to rely on. Today we look at the example of the consequences of sin and also not keeping God's word. It's a, one of those rough portions of scripture, but it ends on a note of encouragement when it comes to slaying the giant. So let's jump in with verse 1. It says, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? So we start off seeing that David inquired of the Lord, and that's a good thing. You know, throughout the scripture, we see there were dry times in David's life, and usually it was reflective of him not seeking the Lord. And then there were times that we find that he does seek the Lord. And, you know, I think we can also make a parallel with our lives in that, you know, we we really should be seeking the Lord in everything that we do. But sometimes we get ahead of God and things happen. And then we realize we should have sought the Lord on that. So, again, it's a relationship with God just like any other relationship. If we don't put in, we don't put into the relationship, we don't pay attention, we don't talk, we don't communicate, it's not as great as it could be as if we are communicating. So we can look at all relationships in our life, but God should be the primary and foundational relationship. So what does God tell David? Well, we find that uh, King Saul, at this point he's passed on, he had killed the Gibeonites. Now, if you remember the Gibeonites, they used to be called the Hivites, and the greater tribe was the Amorites, and really nationally known as the Canaanites. But, you know, it's kind of like country, state, county, township, sort of. You get it? Anyway, they're now Gibeonites, okay, because they live in Israel. However, Joshua, many hundreds of years before this, many centuries before, made a treaty with the Gibeonites that they would be protected by Israel. So, some centuries later, King Saul and his zeal... This guy was a man of the flesh. He, he kind of made these snap and rash decisions. He can't do this as the king. And he thought this was a good idea to just commit this ethnic cleansing, just genocide, and it wasn't. And, and it's particularly important because the children of Israel gave their word. And I think that we can find, well, I don't think, I know we can find these lessons for ourselves. God is, is very concerned. We're not the king. We're, we don't, a lot of us don't have great power in, in our fields. However... He still is concerned with us keeping our word. As a matter of fact, you find it in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Whatever you say, let it be binding. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Especially when we are bearing God's name. Whether in the Old Testament and the children of Israel or today as Christians, even more importantly, because Jesus speaks about it and James reiterates it, it, it's, it's in there. It's in the scripture multiple times. God is concerned about our words. As Christians, we're not supposed to play fast and loose with the truth. 
Sometimes we're intimidated because somebody may ask us to do something or ask us a question, and because we're socially intimidated, we lie or we make something up or whatever. I always like people that are straight shooters, even if it hurts my feelings. At least I know where I stand. And the, the other issue is I don't want to be lied to, and I don't want to lie to anybody. So, you know, we really have to look in the mirror sometimes and ask ourselves, are we liars? Are we two-faced? Are we prevaricators? You know, do we give our word? Do we say we'll be there? And we're not, you know? These are important things. Now, David goes to the Gibeonites, and he's asking their counsel and how he can fix this situation, being the, the present king. It's unclear if God told David, well, go to the Gibeonites and see what they want, or if God wanted David to just continue to inquire, and eventually he would give him the answer. So I'm not going to speculate on that, because I don't want to do that when it's not specifically said in the Scripture. But as we go through this, I'm going to try to put all the puzzle pieces together, because it is one of those things that is, is, on first reading, it can seem a little harsh, but we really have to go into it to understand what we're looking at. Verse 4, And the Gibeonites said to him, We will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. And he said, Well, whatever you say, that I'll do for you. So they answered the king, As for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will give them. See, Saul was chosen, uh, but really the peop- he was the people's choice. But even though he was anointed, it doesn't mean you can just get away with murder. It doesn't mean you can just do what you want. And God did punish Saul while he was alive. And he also punished his wicked deeds even after he passed on. So Gibeah is not asking. They don't want silver or gold. They just want seven of the deceased King Saul's descendants to be killed. And this is hard for us to digest. And I need to think I need to kind of go into this a little bit. Um, you know, we look at this system, really, of its retributive justice, retribution, mosaic law, eye for an eye. Now, let's go into 2014 in New Jersey on the East Coast. We're on the other extreme. I mean, there's really not a lot of justice for murderers and rapists. I mean, a lot of families suffer because there's all these loopholes in the court systems. I remember listening to Chuck Smith him preaching 30 years ago when he spoke about the court systems. Now it's, it's even worse. Um, and I think as society, we've gone in the wrong direction. I mean, I'm tired of reading about young girls who get abducted and they find their bodies only to find the killer and see that he had two or three priors. What well, do you tell the family after the third girl you know, and say, well, the system's broken? Is that justice? I don't think that's justice. You know, it's justice until you're the victim of some psycho doing something like this with a long rap sheet and the system failed you because they didn't incarcerate this person and deal with the situation. So, you know, we're on the other end of the spectrum. Um, David does acquiesce, though, to the Gibeonites for the sake of the nation. And this whole thing is like a snowball. Um, you, you see, the, really, the treaty that Joshua made it was because he was deceived, but he still gave his oath. Right? The, the Gibeonites, way back when, when did kind of deceive him. And uh, he did say that, you know, we'll protect you, we're not going to wipe you out. Uh, and then, of course, to the breaking of the oath by King Saul, then to the genocide of the Gibeonites, and now to the retribution. Um, you can see why God ushered in a new covenant. <laughs> I mean, this is just, 
people are just so wicked back then and today. Um, and, you know, I just, I love the fact that when Jesus came, we don't have to have retribution on each other anymore because Jesus took the sins of the world. Now, society has its own things. When somebody does something and they're uh, a danger to society, yes, the, the justice that the system needs to work. But I think what's beautiful, let's go into the spiritual system, is the fact that all my sins have been paid for on the cross. And I'm not, I don't try to be good because I think that God's going to get me when I get to heaven. I, I want to be good because He's shown me so much grace. I read the law and I see that I've fallen short in the 24 years before I became a Christian or so. And um, I'm just so thankful for what he did for me that I want to do right. I want to follow his precepts. I want to be good to other people. I want to tell other people about the gospel. And you see, so grace is a funny thing with this outpouring of love from God. It changes us. Isn't that amazing? We're not afraid that the police or somebody are going to come get us or the judge or whoever, but we, we do it from the other end out of love. We don't want to hurt anybody. We don't want to assault anybody. We don't want to defraud anybody. So you see where I'm going with this. Right? In the old covenant, you were going to get your, your just desserts. In the new covenant, the love that we receive from God causes us to actually be better citizens in society. We should be as Christians. We should be doing the right thing in society. But moving on. Let me look at this in, in a sense and kind of come at it from also a mitigating factor. Remember, in verse 1, it says, it is because of Saul. God says, it is because of Saul and, right? There's a conjunction there. And his bloodthirsty house. So guess what? Saul had help. Saul had help. And it's quite possibly that the ones that are chosen for this retributive justice had a hand in the murders and the genocide. Can one man carry out? I mean, you could say that Adolf Hitler did it, but how much help did he have in doing it? He couldn't do it himself, physically. So Saul and his bloodthirsty house did this horrible thing. There's a few Gibeonites left, and, you know, we see what's going on over here. I'm going to come back to that, too. Verse 7, it says, But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. He was the one who had the lameness in his feet. He couldn't walk. Uh, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, same name, different person, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons Michal, uh, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mehoiathite. Mehoiathite, I'm trying. Did I do better than, than uh, Bill last Wednesday? I don't know. But it's, it's rough. I got them all except the last one. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of the harvest, in the first days in the beginning of barley harvest. It's a sobering picture. Now, Michelle um, didn't bear children. She was either raising them, for somebody else. And Adriel and Merab were the ones who actually had the five children. So the way I read it is almost as if she was, for whatever reason, taking a hand and raising them, but they weren't her biological children. That's important because some people say, didn't Michelle die childless? Yes, she did. She didn't have any biological children of her own. 
for those of you astute people that are going to ask me after service. I did catch that. Uh, verse 10. Now Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. And David was told that Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had what, he, what she had done. Then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Jabesh who had stolen them from the street of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them up after the Philistines had struck down Saul and Gilboa. I'm going to go through this. Don't worry. So he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin and Zelah in the tomb of Kish, his father. So they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. So we have Rizpah, who's really a brave woman. You know, in those days, if you tweak the king and he had a bad day, he probably could take your head off. He had absolute sovereignty. She doesn't care. She's going to go and she's going to take the sackcloth and, um, you know, it looked like it was, it was a multiple-fold function, uh, the sackcloth for, for mourning, also maybe to protect herself from the elements while she's watching the bodies of the slain, keeping the beasts and the scavengers from picking them apart. I mean, this woman must have been of incredible character to actually do this. And I think David has compassion on her, and what he does is he takes the bodies and gives them a proper burial, and then we get into Saul and his sons, and Jonathan, and you're like, well, where are we going with this? When years ago, the Philistines had killed Saul and Jonathan and um, Saul's other son in battle, uh, the Philistines took their bodies, mutilated them, and, and pierced them, hung them on the wall in one of the cities, their dead bodies, as a trophy. So there was some valiant uh, men of Israel who actually snuck over there, did a little recon. They got the bodies down and they gave them a hasty burial. They, didn't, they weren't going to allow them to, to be out there and, and be humiliated like that. So what happens is David, I guess, takes the, the bodies or the bones of Saul and his sons, takes also the bones of these seven men, takes them all together and gives them a proper burial. Okay? You know, David had his moments. David had his major sins. When he sinned, he sinned big. I think it was also his position. Um, but, you know, sin is, a, sin is sin, and he was the king. But David had a heart for repentance. He had a heart for God, the Bible says, and he also had compassion. You know, you, you, if you appeal to David, he saw this woman, and he, he just had probably overwhelming compassion for her. So he does this. Now, what's the significance? Well, today... We do the same thing. You know, now that all the wars, whether it's in Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever we are, you know, they're on video. And there's this thing, especially with soldiers, whether it's American or Russian or whoever, you don't leave your buddy on the battlefield. You do everything you can to bring that body back, even if it's deceased, even if it causes you peril, to give that person a proper burial so your enemy doesn't mutilate the body and hang it and it's just disgraceful. So you can see a lot of our, our cultural things that we do that were done thousands of years ago still hold true today. There's a lot, of, a lot of parallels, a lot of continuity, a lot of contiguity. Or they're touching each other. So there is something sacred about giving honor and respect to the dead. 
And this is what happens. So that action of David really said a lot in his actions without even any words. I want to take a moment to talk about the consequences of sin from one to another. Now, this is important, and it may actually cause confusion, but I want to work through it. In Deuteronomy 24, 16, it says, The fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall the children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. So either two things happened here. Number one, David should have gone back to God. And I'm not sure what the answer is, but there's one of two things, because God never goes against his word, ever. Either David should have checked with God repeatedly for, for more clarity instead of listening to the Gibeonites and their solution, or the seven that were involved were also part of the bloodthirsty house of Saul. Remember the verse, chapter, verse 1? And they actually had some culpability, and they were getting, according to the law, their deserts for their part and hand in the genocide. See what I'm saying? It, it clears things up. You know, I was speaking to my sister on the phone. She's a Christian. She lives in California a few nights ago. And we talked about generational or family sin. My sister and I uh, are both saved. But we, we talked about, not, not in a bad way, but our parents didn't grow up as Christians. And there were some things that came through the family line that affected us as young people. And then both of us in our 20s, my sister and I at different times got saved. We, we became followers of Jesus Christ. And we, we try to break that line of what happened maybe with parents or stuff that ran in the family. And we were actually happy. It was a joyful conversation because we spoke about my son and her children and how that kind of generational sin has been broken so they can grow up in a different way. You know, there, there's more of an innocence to our children that my sister and I didn't have growing up. So that's one thing. Isn't that interesting? You know, it, it just, it's kind of funny. I'm, I'm doing this, and I thought about our conversation. It was a good conversation. <laughs> the second thing that we can look at, too, is, again, these are consequences of sin of another. We're, I'm not blamed for somebody else's sin in God's eyes, and Jesus paid for my sin anyway. But, but relationally, because we have, we're, we're constantly relating people on this planet, you know, we can be affected or there can be consequences. So we go move from the family to an associate or a friend. I know it's happened to me. <laughs> um, when we start associating with the wrong people, um, that will affect us. So there's a consequence of relational sin as well. And then thirdly, I see this as a pastor. And this sometimes happens in the church, tragically, where believers hurt other believers, whether they defraud them, rip them off, hurt their feelings, whatever the situation may be, and they go to Matthew 18, the person doesn't receive it, it ends up somehow at the, the pastor's level, and we have to deal with it. And it's kind of sad because we should all be doing ministry together, but even we in leadership get slowed down by relational sins of believers to believers. You, you see where I'm going here? So I kind of hit this from three different angles. We are not blamed for another person's sin, but sometimes we get dragged into it. We get roped into it, and we're affected by it. Sometimes we deserve it. Sometimes we don't deserve it. it. It's sad to see believers hurt each other and then maybe leave and leave other people to pick up the pieces and try to minister to them and bring them back up again. Verse 14, it says that God heeded the prayer for the land. Again, what it, what's unclear is, was this exactly God's plan for Saul's sin? Or 
Was it the fact that even if it wasn't exactly the way he would have wanted it, because he wasn't sought out through the entire process, he didn't want to exact any more sorrow on the nation as had already happened? I tend to think that the seven had involvement. That's just, to me, it just works better with Scripture. Again, um, God would never go back on his word. So that, to me, is, is the better understanding of all this. And this is why it's crucial also to pray through any decisions we, we make in life, um, or especially any big decisions. A lot of times it's good to talk to other believers or more mature believers to say, hey, this is a big life decision I'm making. Can you keep me in prayer? You know? And then I love to hear the stories. People come to me, Pastor, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm, I'm going to move or I'm going to change professions or whatever. Can you keep me in prayer? Several months down the line, they come back to me and they tell me what awesome things have happened because they didn't jump too quickly, and they had a lot of people praying for them through the decision-making process. And I've got to tell you, I've been burned. <laughs> I've been burned a lot. I've done some dumb things in life, certainly, because I haven't prayed through things as much as I should have. You know? And, and I, I even pray now before something happens. Um, I ask the Lord to bless my future decisions. So it's, it's pretty cool. Now we're going to shift gears a little bit. We're going to go to the Philistines and, and a few battles. There's only a few verses left in the chapter. And this is interesting because we just were talking about the Philistine battle and Saul and his sons being killed, uh, the bones. And now we're talking about the Philistines reemerging. Some people put this battle a little early on. You know, um, they say it's not necessarily chronological. But, uh, you know, that's, that's a legitimate concern. But I kind of think that this was an ongoing thing with the Philistines. And when I think of the Philistines, you know, these guys were just bloodthirsty. They were barbaric. They were profane. And the Philistines really are a picture of sin. You know, and if the nation of Israel is a picture of, you know, the, the bride of Christ, in a sense, and Christians, um, when we look at the Philistines, we can almost see our, our own sin and things that we, we thought might have, we might have gotten rid of and might have dealt with creeping back up again. So, I mean, again, the parables are astounding. Uh, there's sometimes that, right? I mean, we go through being a Christian for a while, walking strong, and then all of a sudden, it's the right temptation or the right trial, and it brings something out of us that's, that's ugly. And we say, gee, I thought I, I thought I got past this. I can't believe this is resurfacing again. And we have to take it to the Lord. The Bible says that the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? All of our hearts are desperately wicked, even as believers, you know? Verse 15, thank God for Jesus Christ is all I can say. When the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines, and David grew faint. Then Ishbi Benob, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was wearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. First Chronicles 20 gives a parallel rendering, and what I do is as I get into the scripture, um, I got concordances and references. Again, I do this in the New Testament too. Wherever there's a parallel scripture in another book, I, I bring that information in it too, so I kind of give a well-rounded picture of what's going on. So 1 Chronicles 20 gives some information too, um, and we see that in these two accounts there are several battles that are chronicled here. Now, 
David at one point, and this is why I tend to think it is later in his life, uh, and, and you know, Goliath was killed as, as we read through this. Uh, he's already been killed a while ago. Uh, David grows weary from fighting. You know, he's not a young man anymore. He's still a warrior. Probably still keeps in shape, but I mean, hey guys, ladies, can we do what we could do 20 years ago? Not really. <laughs> so David is, he's, he's doing the best he can, and it's a close call. Because his men get a little upset and say, hey, you're not going out to battle anymore. That was a close one. So one of the giants comes after David. He probably has a bead on him. And uh, he probably gets blindsided and sacked by, um, was it Abishai, who comes to David's rescue? Yeah, Abishai, that's just my picture of it. He just whacks him from the side and takes him out. Um, again, the giant thinking that David would be a trophy. But what's really neat is, I don't believe this was disrespectful. Uh, David's men loved him. Uh, he was a great example to them. You know, a lot, there's a lot in leadership about this too. David led by example. And it's amazing what his men would do compared to Saul uh, to protect David and preserve his, his life. Uh, these guys were kind of like the precursors of the Secret Service. But, you know, th- this, it's kind of a neat picture that we see. And David was, you know, they called him the Lamp of Israel. Uh, David allowed God's light to shine through him. You know, he was a vessel of God. It doesn't mean he was godlike or, you know, but he, he allowed himself to be that lamp. Now, it says David grew faint. Spiritually, how can we look at this? I mean, David could never rest. He never stopped fighting against Israel's enemy that tried to, that tried to destroy them. He, he played offensive, but he played defensive a lot. And I can see in, in, in our sense, when we're really stepping into the arena, when we're stepping onto the battlefield, we're saying, Lord, use me. And I'm not saying taking somebody's head off, literally. I'm saying that we're going to go. We're going to evangelize. We're going to tell people about the Lord. We're going to help people. We're going to love them. We're going to you know, help the church to be a light in the community. When we do these things, we step into the proverbial battlefield. That's where we are. And guess what? Pay attention. Because the spears are going to come flying, the swords are going to come swinging, and that's what happens when we raise our hand. Now, the Lord will have us be preserved. There was an expression from a preacher, I can't remember who it was, he said, now take this in context, he says, you, do you realize that if you're being used by God, you are immortal until God is done using you. Think about that. If God has a plan for your life, and, and it includes something that happens for several years, nobody can take you out um, until God's done using you. And of course, the aging process happens as well. But we are going to need to be refreshed at times when we step out onto the battlefield. We're going to get tired, like David. And then there's those that are Christians that are really spectators. A lot of the church, the Western church, are spectators. They, they watch the battlefield, they eat their popcorn, they drink their sodas, um, they're in their armchairs, and they never step out onto the battlefield. And they don't grow faint because they never step out for the Lord. They never raise their hand. And they don't understand the things that others go through when they do step into that battlefield. Verse 18. Now it happened afterward that there was a battle... There, excuse me, there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibishai, the Hushathite, killed Saph, who was one of the sons of the giant. Again, there was a battle in Gob with the Philistines where Elhanan, the son of 
Jera Oregon, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Yet again there was a battle in Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also was born to the giant. So when he defeated Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimea, the brother of David, killed him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Just because I enjoy medicine, um, there is a term today, if you know anybody who has uh, six fingers, seven fingers, six toes, whatever, it's called polydactyly. It's a lot of lot of digits and stuff but basically uh, there's there's another another term or there's another condition one called acromegaly and one called giantism has to do with the pituitary has to do with growth hormone and these men were literally giants otherwise the the bible wouldn't be pointing it out like this we're not sure if it's the condition we understand with the pituitary and growth hormone or it's the whole, the whole thing back to Genesis 6 with the hybrid race of, of humans and angels, the fallen angels mating and have these, these hybrid children. So we don't know. But we do know that they were definitely giants. And everyone knew on the battlefield that David as a youth killed Goliath, the giant. He was their champion. Out of all of, of the Philistines, they put Goliath for, forth. And he sneered at David. You little runt. You know, what are you... My dog that you throw chase after me with sticks. You know, he, he looked at little David and he was insulted that the Israelites didn't provide a bigger dude with some, you know, helmet and war and kind of had the stance. He was insulted by David and David killed him. Everyone on that battlefield, I'm sure, knew that David as a boy with his stones and his slingshot killed Goliath. And I believe that David inspired his men later as the king. And he didn't hang up his gear. He continued to go out to battle. The only time we read that he didn't and he stayed back was when he fell into sin, remember, when he was idle? But, you know, now they have to retire him. Spiritually, when you see others fighting giants, I know for me, as a Christian, when I saw men of God and the things that they did against all odds, and they continued to serve, the, serve God, I wanted to be like them, especially as a new believer. That inspired me. Human nature is to follow a winner. You know, it's really, it, human nature is also to follow a leader. But sadly, today in our society, especially our youth, they're following bad leaders. You know, whether it's celebrities or sports figures or politicians, they're teaching them bad things. And God will hold them accountable for what they teach the, the little impressionable minds of children. But in today's society, we have leaders, but a lot of them are bad leaders. I tell you what, nobody also wants to follow a weak leader because that causes instability. You know, that can't be. And then that panic uh, spreads through the camp like a virus, and I've talked about that. My desire for everyone here, anyone listening to this, even on the the CD or the, the website, is to be fearless when you're serving the Lord. I never met Caleb, but I'm impressed by the guy. I want to meet him. At 85, he still wanted to climb the mountain and take the giants. You couldn't retire this guy. This guy was amazing. Um, I, want, I want to meet David. David uh, was, the Bible describes him as like kind of runtish, small, compared to his brothers. And, and I hope that 
in a spiritual sense that I can inspire you if I'm fighting the giants and I refuse to give up. That's what I want. We can certainly see lessons in discipleship as well. So, I have no problem giving other pastors kudos. I've done it before with some names that you might be familiar with from this pulpit. I was going through this, and it's not a coincidence, but I stumbled upon, and I never really go on this website, I stumbled upon Bible.org, and I'm going to read to you a paragraph. This literally was like 12 pages long, and I, I just kind of I just skimmed through it. I'm like, what's the main point? Something told me, go to the conclusion. I'm going to read it word for word. It wasn't from me, but I've got to give this guy credit because it was brilliant. He says this. He says, this to me is a very important lesson in leadership. Often people want leaders to, who will do the job for them. And that's wrong. That's not why we have leaders. It says, the greatness and contribution of a leader are judged by how big a hole is left when he steps aside. In biblical terms, this should be an insult to a godly leader. The task of leaders is not to do everything, but to facilitate ministry, to train, equip, encourage others who will take our place and even do a better job than we have. That's my prayer for my son as he grows older. You know, I was in, in, in the world in sin for 20-something years. I want, him to, I want him to, God, to do something with him, whatever it is. I want to see him just increase and for me to decrease. I want to see the young men in this church stand up and want to be discipled and want to take over at some point when, when they're ready. It says, if this is what Christian leader, leadership is to be, then David was a great leader. Under Saul, not one man was willing to stand up to Goliath. That's a good point. They were all scared. In David's ministry, there were many willing and able to do so. David is now free to step aside, first as the commander and military of the military and later as king, because he has done his job well. He has helped to create a lower level of leadership that is ready to take his place. Leaders, where are you? Where are you? Are you praying about it? Come and talk to us about it. Most dictators dread the fact that there are others like this and seek to eliminate them because they are seen as competition. This is not so with David, and it should not be so with us either. Man, I agree. I can tell you that the last week to two weeks has been a rat race for Pastor Paul and Christine and Heather and I. We've been doing a lot of stuff that you probably don't realize. We could certainly use some good women and men to stand up and say, can I lift your arms? Is there any way I can help? You know, I don't, I don't, wanna, I don't want the few of us to be doing this by ourselves. I want to see good leaders raised up. I can say this to my Wednesday night crew. No, I can say it on Sunday too. I probably will repeat. This is a great paragraph. <laughs> are you ready? Do you want to be ready? And if you are a leader and you are being discipled, we don't get discipled to take a bunch of stuff and just bloat and we can't digest it. We are disciples so we can take information, we can take the understanding, and we transfer it onto the field. Because if we never get from the classroom to the field, it's useless. So there will be expectations. There will be times where you step onto the field and you, you get your leg wounded. But you've got to get back up and do it again. So a few things we can definitely learn through all this. Number one, going back to the beginning, 
We must keep our word and be grounded by the truth. Two, we need to be careful about being influenced or brought down by another's sins. Three, at some point in all of our learning, we need to take it to the field and start slaying the giants. God didn't give us this slingshot or whatever to just play tiddlywinks and knock cans over. He wants us to slay the giants. Plink, plink, you know what I'm saying? And four, discipleship. Discipleship is for eventually to do something with it, and you will be tested. Some of you already are being tested, but that's a good thing. You know how many times I flunked when I was being tested, when I was being discipled by men of God? And probably some of them thought, he'll never amount to anything. But they wouldn't say that because they wouldn't want to hurt my feelings. But you know what? I still kept getting up because I wanted it. How bad do you want it? Let's pray. Father in heaven.